welcome to Order of Operations. It's time for episode 33, When to Centralize. So this topic was requested by Kama Friedman and her team. So thank you, Kama, for sending in the idea and also shout out to my DMV neighbor. Today, we'll go through what responsibilities we've centralized, when we centralize them, and different ideas for how to organize your organization. We also have a very special guest that I think you guys are gonna be super excited for. We have Mo Khalil, the executive director of Khalil Ventures joining us today. So Libby, I feel like we haven't done shout outs in a while. So let's start out with those. My shout out this week goes to Henry Smith and I'll review in a future episode who that guy is. I also feel like my entire Losting Enterprises team deserves acknowledgement because their 2020 numbers are honestly very comparable to our 2019 numbers. And in times where people are permanently closing their businesses or down over 40%, I'll honestly just take my victories where I can find them. So Nikki, who is your shout out for this week? I have three shout outs this week. And they're all for people who were able to provide me with some great radical candor, my favorite buzzwords. So Sam Larimer, who we had as a guest on one of the earlier episodes, I called him for help and we were able to have a good, honest conversation. And I was bouncing a couple ideas around and he was radically candid and told me a couple of things I should not do. So that was helpful. And I also reached out to a member of my team, Kyle Smith, who again, gave me brutal honesty when I asked. And so I I appreciate that because I know that's hard to give your boss. And so shout out to Kyle and then James, because we've been having good conversations and I've been working hard towards radical candor. And I feel like there's just a lot of like people things going on right now. And so I appreciate having people to turn to that you can cut to the chase and there's no ruinous empathy. I love Sam, dude. Me and Sam are always DMing in the Slack channel about various needs between the Santa Cruz and Lossing portfolio. So he's a really good one to bounce back and forth on. Yes. With my um, extended commute now, I have been calling people in the car for entertainment. Uh, You got one of those calls the other day. I have been the beneficiary of your new commute, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Sam and I talked through the whole drive. Um, so, and it's an hour now for me. So we talked for the whole hour. So it was very constructive. <laughs> Y'all, Nikki and I talk at least once a week when we record the episodes and we hang out on our Zoom for honestly hours. And I was not used to Nikki calling me. So when Nikki calls, I think there's like an emergency or she's telling me that something's down or that there's like a software issue or an MCO issue or whatever. And Nikki will just like be so casual and I keep waiting for the shoe to drop and it's just Nikki's driving in her car (laughs) and needs to talk to someone. Okay, so we do have an interview today and Nikki... You definitely know Mo better than I do. I'm a big fan of Mo, but you get to work with him on a more personal level, whereas I think that's kind of the role Karen plays in our relations with other strategic accounts. So can you introduce Mo for us? Yes. So I first met Mo Khalil when he came up to Richmond to train my whole team on sales. That was like in 2014, 
And so that's when Mo and James started to collaborate more. So we were all working together, uh, but I knew, I mean, as soon as I met him, that he was a rock star, knew what he was talking about, and also is phenomenally kind and humble and personable. Mo's been part of Mathnasium for a long time. So he actually started with Waterford Lakes down in Florida in 2011. And before that, he was a top salesman for Verizon, and then now is the reigning Mathnasium champ. And also have to say, he's probably the biggest Yankees fan I know. To be the nerd that like jumps in and just more explicitly states Mo's accolades and credentials for this episode, Mo owns the most Mathnasium locations in North America. So I think he's at 35. Mo, for multiple years now, has had top 10 individual learning centers by revenue. So like individual locations are in the top 10 for their revenue. And then for a couple of years now, Mo's certainly been in the top 10 for his portfolio's revenue, but he's been sitting at number one for at least three years now. It's longer than that. He, he's been our number one rock star for revenue in the franchise for quite some time. Okay, so we will just get to the interview. Okay, enjoy, and then Nikki and I will be back here in a second whenever we're done talking to Mo. Mo, we introduced you by your accolades, but you deserve way more credit than that. So let's start out this interview with just some background info on you. If you haven't heard the story, I migrated to the U.S. at the age of 11 from Alexandria, Egypt. Did not know any English at all. And so that first year, year and a half was a challenge, a huge challenge. But that's also led to who I am today. You know, my brother and sister, and we sat down and we solved the problem, learned the language and learned how to fit in. So that has a lot to do with my competitiveness. From there, I started in food management, retail management. I was the youngest store manager ever at Pizza Hut at 17. By the time I left, I ran the number one store for that franchisor out of 136. From there, went to Canon Business Solutions. So that's direct sales. This is all while I did college full-time as well. So finished college right around that time, I, I joined Canon. I did sales there, and that's probably where I learned a lot of my background. There was a true professional sales training program, and I dealt with a lot of marketing departments, finance departments. You deal with a lot of different departments when you're doing those high-end equipment sales, right? $50,000, $200,000 orders. And so uh, from there, September 11th happened. I was in New York uh, at the time. I worked around 42nd Street. It became just very, very challenging to do my job with the name Muhammad. And so I decided then and there, I'm just done. I'm going to start my own business. And that's where I moved to Florida and opened up the first Verizon wireless store. I was around 26 at the time. From there, I met my wife, Julie, at Verizon. And so I've known her since the first day I moved down for about 17 years now. I do have two sons, Alexander and Aiden. Aiden just turned nine yesterday and Alex is 12. And uh, we're a baseball family. So my weekends, every weekend, weeknights are either baseball practices or away doing travel baseball. So that's my life. I love that. And so now you have like your lovely family. How did you come to transition to franchising with Mathnasium? Why did you choose this franchise? How did you hear about it? Like what was the, what was the draw? 
So that's a great question. So Alex had just been born and I was doing the, you know, nine to nine hours, uh, retail hours, right? You're open seven days a week. You're open so many hours. I'm missing a ton of time in the first couple of years, actually in the first year or so of Alex, because he's 12 and, and we've opened our first location 10 years ago. So it's the first couple of years. In any case, wanted to do something cleaner, wanted to do something rewarding. My wife uh, loves kids. And so she had done gymnastics, professional gymnastics and, and cheer growing up. And so we thought maybe we could do something together. I could handle the business end and she can handle maybe the training end. And then from there, it just led to us looking at every children-based business. And then from there into education. And I found Mathnasium on the satisfaction survey, that the one that we fill out every year. I did not want to just look at the pure top 500 that's great, but that that's not satisfaction. And so somehow I found this survey and, and that's what connected me with Mathnasium and the rest is history. Awesome. So I know your leadership and bar setting and mentorship has been a huge factor in my and my team's success. So I'm really excited to be able Thank to you. discuss the growth and be able to share some of the tips and tricks and help people avoid some pitfalls because let's be honest, growing is not always easy. It's not. And it just doesn't make sense. And this is why we buy into a franchise is so we can use each other's experience, right? I mean, this is what we pay those royalties for. Otherwise you'd have just started your own business. So, you know, people did it for me, uh, mentored me, helped me, trained me as well. And so it's always been an honor for me to pass it down. So any, any uh, questions you guys might have, I'm happy to answer. So when people think about growing into a large portfolio owner, they have a series of questions they ask. So at what point do I need to centralize? What responsibilities do I need to centralize first? And then how do I compensate the centralized team members? So Mo, for you, at what point in your portfolio's growth did you decide that it was time to take certain tasks away from the centers and create a centralized role? I personally opened the first four locations. And so I opened the first one kind of gave it to an assistant manager, opened the second one. And that was about seven months apart. And then about 13 months later, we opened our third location. And then seven months after that, we opened our fourth location. So it was right around the fourth when I decided I just can't do it all. I can't run the company. And I was a center manager as well. And so I stepped out of the fourth location center management. And believe me, I was doing it all, right? I was, during the day, I was running my center. And at night, I was running the company. So right around that time is when I decided it's time to step up and run the company and run it more efficiently. And so right around that time also, we hired our first centralized role and that was our director of many hats then. So she did hiring, training, recruiting, and training the instructors, training the managers. And so anything that had to do with people, uh, Lauren took care of that. Lauren's been with us since day one. I just had one more part with that question. Like what was the like deciding factor, the like guiding principle as you were saying like, okay, hold on, this needs to come out of the center. When you're growing and in the beginning, money is a huge factor, right? Money is probably always a huge factor when you're running your own business. And so uh, what finally hit me is, you know, if we're at these four locations now, and this is how much we bring in revenue, I did a simple calculation as to how much my hourly rate was. And so whatever that number is, I said, from this moment forward, I should not be doing any job that is under that hourly rate, right? So why am I fixing printers? Why am I doing bookkeeping? And so I'd come home at night, watch TV after the kids and literally do invoice by invoice, line by line, back when we used QuickBooks. And so 
was like, look, why, why wouldn't I hire a bookkeeper at whatever, 20 bucks an hour, 30 bucks an hour to take that away? So my guiding principle from then and always, instead of spending your time on these tasks, what can you do with your time actually managing the company? Can you grow the company? Can you train someone in that hour or two versus running out to get supplies? That's so funny that that's your answer because anytime Karen or I do what Steve considers $10 an hour work, $12 an hour work, $15 an hour work, he will tell us like how much money we could have spent to be able to have that time back to do the more pressing responsibilities that only an owner or an operator of our level can do. So I like that you think about it that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But in the beginning, look, you got to wear those multiple hats. We have to do what we have to do. I mean, I, you know, I I put my dues in and you put all those hours in. the money may not call at the time for that, but, but you got to try to do it as early as you possibly can and try to delegate these tasks and then just focus on managing the business and, uh, and growing it. Great. And then if you're hearing that question, you're like, someone ask Mo about profitability and P&L and when you can warrant not wearing all those hats don't worry we'll ask them later so now at this point mo what jobs do you have out of the centers so at this point my main responsibilities are the growth of the company so these are the things that i've just never able to train someone on or frankly want to give up this is the fun part looking for new locations doing the demos, searching maps, searching the retail spaces, negotiating the legal part of it. At this point with 35 locations, there's always a, a location that's up for renewal, expiring, if I'm looking at new locations. So that's pretty much my main responsibilities now, along with just being the figurehead leader. You know, my face, my voice is there with the company, but thankfully we have Ed who runs the entire company day to day. I can go away for a month and he might only have a couple of questions for me when I return. So I I try to give him the leeway to make the decisions. My main responsibilities, again, are growth and leading the company. Finance, of course, is directly with me. So budgets, banking, things like that. Nice. And then Ed oversees your back office team, support team. I don't know what you call them. Our support center is what we call it, similar to home office. But Ed runs everything. He has way too many direct reports. So we're probably due for a new position. He manages all the area managers, and I believe we have seven area managers, and then the leaders of the different departments that we now have. So finance, training, recruiting, you know, our phone team, our marketing assistant. And so, yeah, he's got a lot, way too many. And so I've always heard how many people uh, can you manage to be effective. And it's always something around six. This is why we like to keep our area managers at six direct reports, six locations so that they could be effective. And so he obviously has way more than that. And so our long-term is probably to put a layer between Ed and the area managers. So maybe someone like VP of sales or something like that, that runs the day-to-day in the centers. And so the six to seven area managers will report directly to him along with all the department heads. Nice. Okay. Exciting. You actually killed one of my questions for later on. (laughs) Ask it separately again if you want. It's okay. Okay. So you touched on your support, your version of home office, and you mentioned a couple different department heads. Can we just quickly go over what departments are and what responsibilities they have? Absolutely. At this point, we have 
our recruiting department, which I'm going to end up saying is the most important probably with every single one of these departments, but uh, without them, really, we couldn't function. And so we have three full-time people in our recruiting department, you know, administering the assessment tests, looking for recruits, the application process, doing the initial interviews. They do everything up to the final stamp of approval, which comes in from the center manager. We've even centralized the employment test that can be taken online now. And so we're not wasting the manager's time administering those. And so we have three people doing that now. From there, our finance department includes two people. And so that's Allie. And Allie also wears so many hats. So she's finance and operations manager. She has a team of two people. One does the billing typically. And so that's every day's billing, refunds, holds, et cetera, for the 35 locations. And then we have Lindsay who does all the operations. And so that includes ordering, making sure all the centers have what they need when they need it, as well as the HVAC issues, the pro the printer problems, the, my lights are out. I need chairs. I need tables. I need this. She is great. And she takes care of all those things for us. So we call that finance operations. From there, we have our training department. So our director of training, which is Lauren with Jody and Samantha Tanner are our training slash education department. So we attach those two together. And so they're responsible for all the initial training of our instructors. Uh, that's all done remotely before they get to the center. Again, our guiding principle here is to try to take away as many administrative responsibilities, even from our center managers and let them really run the business. Again, they, they take care of training, education, training our center managers. Our center manager training is about two and a half months, about 10 weeks, and uh, Lauren will guide them through that 10 weeks. From there, we have our SOAR team, which is our phone team. Uh, our phone team started after I believe seven or eight locations. I used to answer all the phones for our entire company through the first four locations. And then I think we got six, seven, eight, nine. And Caitlin and Amy, who you guys know, used to not only run their very high volume centers, but they would also answer all the phone calls for I think up to nine locations. And we finally said enough's enough. And so we started and hired people just to answer the sales calls for us. And so that department has about six, seven people in it now, part-time, full-time. And we do have a department head, Eliana, that, that takes care of the training and all the day-to-day -day there. From there, I think we discussed operations. Our marketing assistant is Dave, and he takes care of all the ads, Facebook, PPC, retargeting, making sure things like our Covenant House campaign is getting all the attention it needs, sending out updates and things like that. So he does everything marketing-wise posters, flyers, business cards, all those things are his responsibility. The actual day-to-day -day school marketing is at the center level. So that would be our department heads. Of course, we have our area managers and our area managers, like I said, operate four to six locations. And Nikki and I love your area managers very much. <laughs> they're our girls. They're very, very, very competent. They're great. And they've been with us for a very long time. So I'm very lucky to have them. It's honestly amazing how long your girls have been with the company because I think they're either coming up on tears and then you got Stephanie who hasn't been with you for 10 years, but she's been with Mathnasium for over 10 years. So like, it's honestly incredible. 
It, it I, again, I, it's unbelievable. I couldn't have done this without them. They've been here since day one. Uh, many of them have been here since day one. And yes, so to go out and get someone like Stephanie onto our team that also has 10 years experience was, was just an absolute home run. And we're glad she moved from Sacramento to Dallas for us. If a owner from outside of your portfolio who needs to like kind of pick and choose what they're going to centralize first, what advice would you give to them for like determining what they need to pull out of their centers, like as the priority? We're an education business. And so it depends on the type of person you are, right? And so if you're an education background, you're probably always going to want to hold on to that. But if you are a business background, education might not be your strength. I would say your opposite to start will be the most important person. So for me, I was great at math. I love math. I could teach math, but that's not why I started this company. And so for me, Lauren being our first operational person, she's math-based. So she took care of all the education, the training, made sure that the centers, the binders, all those things are at top level. But Again, if you're an education-based person, I would probably go out and hire someone that is operations-based. They're going to take care of your billing and you know accounting and all the things that if you're an educator, you probably don't like to do. And then you can kind of concentrate on the education. So that would be the first hire. They're also going to wear so many hats as you continue to grow. And then from there, we, you just have to kind of look at where your biggest pain is and then start to break off some of those positions and eventually they all turn into their own positions when you get big enough. So Mel, I like how you talked about how this is a luxury and like, it's a lot of just blood, sweat, and tears to get to this point. And yes, absolutely. There's a lot to be said for coming through the system, but yeah, I mean, you, you got to do what, what makes you happy at the end of the day. And so, you know, you got to put your dues in, in the beginning, you're the janitor and the plumber and, you know, all those things. And you give up some of those jobs as you move along. Yeah. And then also being able to like grow with the organization as well. So it sounds like, I mean, Mo, you jumped to three locations very quickly. So you knew I want a large organization. Absolutely. A lot of people ask the question, when, when, when can I do this? When should I do this? What about profitability? Right? So for me, I've never wanted to burn out my team and then hire the relief. I wanted to do it ahead. And so knowing that we're going to get the five or six locations, I may invest in that person earlier, get them trained. And so by the time we get to that fifth, sixth location, you know, a few months later, we're ready for it. And so whether that's an area manager or, you know, an operations person, sometimes you just got to take the profitability out of it and consider it an investment if you are moving ahead with growth. Nice. I feel like that's a way that a lot of people don't always look at the problem. Like instead of like investing forward, it's more like spending the funds that they have at the moment or like working hard to like climb up the ladder instead of trying to get ahead or like get upstream. Absolutely. And you know, there have been many times when we've been <laughs> upstream and behind. Those are the conversations you have with, you know, your peers and we all keep each other sane a little bit. But yes, I mean, for the most part, that's the plan. The plan is I know where we're going to grow and, you know, it's an investment to be ahead as much as possible. I always wanted to take care of my people and make sure they weren't going to burn out. And so we try to do that ahead. Every time we ask for requests from our listeners on what they want to hear about. We get a lot of requests to discuss profitability and then like vetting resales on the podcast. So do you have any thoughts on how you look at P&Ls for new resales and how you consider your overhead whenever you bring new locations on? 
Absolutely. So right now we like to keep our overhead, which means outside of a center manager at around 12%. So that's how much our area managers and all those departments cost us right now. And so if I'm bringing on a new location now, we are no longer doing the cherry picking. That that became such a huge challenge. And, you know, like we started a location in Little Rock, Arkansas, but that was the only one we were going to have in Little Rock. And that became a huge challenge for your area manager to have to take a flight to go to spend time there. And if the manager left, you were just in a lot of trouble. And so now in analyzing a PL or looking at a location, that's very important for us. Does it fit in the plan that we have without stretching ourselves too thin? PL wise, there are two different kinds of resale opportunities. And so that's the super successful or successful center that it actually has profitability and the owners retiring for one reason or another. And so an example of that would be the Woodlands in Texas, which was one of the top 10 centers for so many years. And we were able to buy that, but it was with a plan around it of owning up to six centers in the Houston market. And so we quickly got up to that six locations in the Houston market and Caitlin moved out there to operate that as an area manager. That was a successful business. A successful business in America usually sells between two to three times profitability. So if you can demonstrate that you made $100,000 last year, the location is worth two to 300. And so you can kind of do the math from there and then come up with a deal that's good between the two owners. The other side of that is a not profitable location. And so, you know, that's a struggling owner, does not want to do this anymore. And in that case, really there's no profitability, no PL to look at, right? Because the location is probably losing money or breaking even. From there, the way I value those locations is on future potential. You know, do I like the location itself that it's in? If I don't, well, I got to calculate that cost of relocating into the equation, right? If there are three years left on the lease, do I want to struggle in a not so great location for three more years or not? And so I probably wouldn't buy a location if it was locked into a three-year lease that I didn't like, because I don't want to wait three years just trying to stay afloat before we actually finally turn a profitability. So those are important factors in evaluating those not profitable locations. How good is the territory? Again, does it fit within our long-term plans? So if I have five locations in an area and this would be the sixth, for an area manager, that's going to get us the capacity. How much is that worth for me? And so those locations, I would probably say, are typically worth 100000 and less if they're not profitable. When we've purchased locations typically as low as $40,000, and then some that are doing a little bit better, you know, up to hundred. And then obviously something like the Woodlands, I think was the highest uh, ever because it was a very successful location. And that was in the half million dollar range. It's very validating to me to hear that you and I evaluate these things the same way. The only like discrepancy between what you said and how we operate is that if it's a failing business, we normally do like a thousand dollars ahead for a student enrollment. Which is typical for the $40,000, right? If you have 40 kids, you're barely breaking even, it's not worth any more than $40,000. And so I'm sure some people are going to be upset at me for saying these things. <laughs> the buyers are going to be happy I said this and the sellers are not going to be very happy. <laughs> it's it's a reality check. We've been having a lot of those conversations during COVID times. Yeah, it's, you know, how could you get that much money for a not successful business, right? So that, that's what it comes down to. But the Biz Buy Sell runs a quarterly report, which is incredible. And it's per region, per industry. And it gives you a lot of those figures, right? So in education, in California, resales usually go for whatever, 2.5x. 
that that's the going for last quarter. And then again, you could kind of do the math from there. You know, is it worth more to you to get to closer to three? Or if it's not, and there are some factors that reduce that number from 2.5, then you're getting closer to the two times profitability. And then Mel, I had a follow-up question more on like the logistics of the resale and expansion. I know one thing that we really struggle with is evaluating the capacity of our support center. So how do you look at a potential expansion's effect on your support team? Again, great question. So I'm pulling in my team, you know, our managers and asking them, could you take on one more? So whether that's the recruiting team, what capacity are you guys at? Well, you know, Mo, we're working 12 hour days. We're like 45 hours each for the three of us. It doesn't make sense to add another location without adding another person on that team. Same with, you know, let's say the area manager, the area manager at six or maybe even seven, a little bit more. Could they take on eight? And what will that do? Would that break their day, um, or their week? And will that break them? And so, yes, I, I don't do anything resale wise without the full support of our department heads, area manager, et cetera. Nice. I know that's the struggle. But then you also have those moments where it's just like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but like, I just can't pass this up. So, how do you handle those? We've done that and we've taken locations over on a week notice, two weeks notice. My team around me love those. They're kind of crazy couple of weeks. It, my, my team is crazy like me, I guess. It's the excitement. They, you know, and, and we just get over it, right? Unfortunately, we've done, I mean, there was a period, I think, where we did 12 resales in like 12 months or something like that. It was like one a month and we've done three and four at a time from multi-center owners. And so we get through it. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of experience and I'm happy to share anything we have. We have a full takeover list. And so for acquiring a location, what to look for, what to ask. And then of course, a full task list of sign new I-9s and W-2 forms or whatever, right? Background checks, et cetera. We have it kind of down to a science now and we're happy to share anything we have. Nice. Oh my gosh. 12 and 12 months. I mean, sounds like the dream, but like, holy moly, what a challenge too. That 12 months, I also, that was me, not only 12 resales, but I think we relocated slash upgraded, renovated. I think it was like nine more. And so I did 21 in a 12 month period. That's lawyers, LOIs, relocations, construction, 21 GCs or whatever. Yeah. My lawyer was very happy that year <laughs> for all the fees he collected. Oh my goodness. So then, so we've talked about a lot of like best practices on centralizing. What if someone takes this to the extreme? So what's an example of just like going too far? Like what are tasks you feel like are best handled by the employees working in the center? That's a great question. And, and I had to think about, about this a lot. And I came up with, you know, I get a lot of people that ask me, could we centralize marketing? And can it be done? Possibly if you are in the same area, right? If Again, if you're not cherry picking and you have your two, four, six locations in the same area, potentially you can have one person in charge of your marketing. But to me, marketing means schools and community. And so that's just a lot of work. And in my opinion, it would be too much to take that away from a center manager and put it into a marketing person, let's say, for example, because it's a lot, all right? If you're maintaining 10 to 15 schools relationships per center and you got four centers, that's 60 schools. And again, I've always felt that if that person left, 
it's too much knowledge with one person versus having the manager and the assistant manager develop those relations. And so that would probably be taking it a little too far, centralizing marketing, for example. That's interesting. Libby, I feel like you guys kind of do. You see, what's different about the way that we run the portfolio and the way that like Mo has to run his is that our area managers are family. <laughs> it's Karen, Libby, and Evan. So we do it as an area manager level because we can drive to all of those locations and we don't have the same concern that Mo would because we're not going to leave with all this knowledge because we're blood. there's a lot of stuff that I would never want to take away from my center directors like a lot of the parent communication things like I like when my center directors are the face of the business and that's not something I'd ever want to take away from them I also don't have a support team like I know you guys like at Temple Ventures and Khalil Ventures you guys have like actual support staff our support staff org chart is like Karen, Libby, and Evan are area managers and back office support roles, like just as individual people. So we're not, we're not there yet. We haven't broken the double digit center account. And I feel like that's when we'll need to reassess everything. You're probably right in the same boat of where we were once I got to four. And so once you get to four in your area, I believe you're in Arizona, you probably need one more person to help you out, right? And so you're probably right there, right? And so what's the capacity for Karen? you know, if she's at four over there, maybe it's time to hire one more person, right? And so I find that that number four is pretty key to, to start investing in a support person. Yeah, it sounds like four and six are your magic numbers. I had one last question, unless Nikki had anything else. With you have right now, your current org chart, how many more units do you think you could add before you needed to like either double up on positions or I know you mentioned like Ed might need someone between him and area managers. Like what are your next positions in your org chart if you're going to continue to grow? So that's a question that we thought about a lot. And I think we could probably get to, I would say 48 with the team that we have. So I think if not more, I think we have eight area managers. So that's that 48 and six each, but it it doesn't always work out like that, right? Because if an area manager has six and another one has three, but the opportunity comes at the area manager's territory that, that has six, well, we really have to think twice about it. But I think we can get up to 48. I think our next two hires, number one, of course, is you know elevating someone from our team to manage the area managers and then kind of give that buffer to Ed, our COO. And then we probably want to finally hire a full professional HR person. Right now we're doing the HR, you know, on a per call basis with an outside company. And so maybe a VP of people. And so that will incorporate all the hiring, talent, recruiting, training, HR, all of those things. And so I think those are the only two positions we really need to get up to that 4850. So Mo, there's one cool thing I learned about that I wanted to share. So There's someone who I love following on LinkedIn and she's the chief heart officer and she's all about the people. I love the name. And I feel like that might be right up your alley. Um, That's awesome because we've always thought about that, right? Like someone to take care of our people. Like again, I my one of my long-term goals is to have our company on one of those best companies to work for, you know, whether it's small business, medium business, whatever to get there we definitely would need someone like a chief heart officer, right? That, that's just going to make sure our people are happy getting what they want, getting their questions answered. Uh, communication is really, really hard right now. You know, if I wanted to communicate with our 550 team members, 
I, I couldn't just push a button and, you know, we'd have to go on our payroll company, download an Excel spreadsheet, get all their emails and texts, and then email and text and hope that, you know, that they're checking and it's the right updated email and text. And so these are the things that I feel chief heart officer, you know, people officer would really be able to handle on a day-to-day basis and elevate us to one of those best to work companies. I like that goal. I think that's a great goal. My final wrap up question. And then I know Nikki, it looks like she has one submitted question for problem of the week. Are there any of these back office roles that you feel that franchisees could potentially share? Like anyone who maybe doesn't necessarily have the four to six locations needed to justify a support member to work full-time. Do you think there's any position that could possibly be shared across portfolios? Yes, absolutely. James and I, uh, I believe have shared our bookkeeper in the beginning until we each can afford to go on our own. I think we've done marketing and we've definitely have shared the phone team. Could you hire one person to help with your two and then your neighbors too, and answer the calls on time and, and make sure the calls are being answered? Absolutely. So there are many of these can definitely be shared, right? Again, if someone is doing LinkedIn or Indeed applications and processing applications and calling people back, they could definitely do it for multiple owners. And uh, that's a huge benefit, right? If you can do that and get someone that can do full-time, let's say between two or three owners, as you know, most people want a full-time job, the best people do. And so could you share a full-time person amongst maybe an area? And I definitely believe it can be done and should be. You should definitely you know, talk to your neighbors and try to work something out like that. Nice. Okay. And then that is a perfect segue into the question that was submitted on our Instagram for the problem of the week. So what are some tactics or just ideas or approaches to attract and afford the talent needed to run the organization at the caliber at which you want to run it? This is a hard question and we did not give it to you ahead of time. So I apologize. Uh, No worries. Uh, But I know the answer, at least the first part of the answer right away. Uh, I think looking inside your organization is gotta be key. I think a lot of our people, longest tenured people came from our organization. And so we forget that sometimes because that part-time instructor is only working 15, 20 hours a week. They may be a business major, they may be a marketing major, they may be a math education person. And so if they are one of those things, and what are their long-term goals, right? If, if they want to run a business, well, you could hopefully turn that person to a full-time job as soon as they graduate and, you know, help them run a business. And so tell them, look, here, you're going to run a small business. You're going to help me run a small business. And what an amazing experience that could be. So if you're looking for an education person and, and that person graduates and instead of going to teach, you know, in a school where we know there are a lot of red tapes and, you know, challenges in working in a school, well, why don't you stay here? And so we've done that many times, you know, Amy, got her math education degree, decided to stay on instead of teach schools. Lauren was the same way, you know, and I can name multiple people that stayed with us afterwards. And so number one would definitely be talk to your team members, find out what their majors are, find out what their dreams are. And it's not even majors, right? Because I've had people that have finished college and didn't want to do anything with their major and they like the business. And so that would be the first part. 
Secondly, obviously, it's the same thing we all have to do, right? So LinkedIn, Indeed, asking around. A lot of the colleges have business mentor and business department. So, you know, I've spoken at UCF, I believe two or three times to their business schools on various different topics. And so I always leave with a business card or two or a phone number or two of someone saying, hey, this would be great. I graduate in six months. How can I apply? That's the community stuff that you have to do all the time, right? You're, you have to be speaking to people. You got you have to be speaking to people at supermarkets, you know, restaurants, whatever, and not just rely on the same thing that everybody else is relying on. So that's your Indeed, your LinkedIn, that you put an ad and you just assume that the best people are going to come to you. This is why we have three people in our recruiting department, because we're actively recruiting from competitors, from, you know, retail organizations and things like that. That was good. That was a... Answer that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think, so that was the only problem of the week we had submitted. Is there anything that we didn't? I feel like we really covered it unless Mo had anything he wanted just to speak from the heart on. Yeah. Anna, I wanted to thank you for doing this. This is above and beyond what your normal day-to-day activities are. And so it's very kind, very nice of you guys to lead and be an example for the new up-and-coming owners that are struggling with these everyday questions. So again, amazing job. You guys are doing great. I listen to the podcast every time one comes out. And so I appreciate all the hard work that you put into this. You guys are awesome. It's definitely a quarantine project turned into something bigger. So it's been a lot of fun. You'd be surprised how many people are just disconnected and just like, this is, this is, you know, a medium that's maybe different, right? Like how many people are not reading the Mathnesia Matters, right? Or reading the the manual or, uh, you know, a lot of people have to wait year after year for a convention to get a lot of these questions answered. And so you, you guys have filled in a great void and now they can ask these questions on a monthly basis instead of yearly. Yeah. Awesome. Yay. Do we want to wrap up by plugging Covenant House at all? Do you want to talk about it or oh, share yeah. how you guys are doing? Are you guys done with your fundraising or wrapping up soon? So the, the, it's wrapping up soon. The sleep out occurred a couple of weeks ago. So we are wrapping up we've been able to collect about $65,000 so far. There are a couple of owners out there that haven't turned in that do help us as well. You know, I want to personally thank the Spears. They are collecting for the Covenant House at their locations. The Temples, I know you you guys have many locations that collect for us as well. So a huge shout out. Thank you so much. As you guys all know, this is a really, really hard time. And so the Covenant House means a lot to me personally. I've lived through it. I suffered through it. I was actually uh, homeless at the age of 17 for about seven or eight months, sleeping in my car, sleeping on couches, sleeping in the pizza hut that I ran at the end of the night. And so I got lucky and with the help of others and organizations like that, I got out. And so Covenant House just means so much to us because it it truly saves people's lives. And so I wanna thank everyone that's supported us from our entire team who were amazing to a lot of the owners that have supported us as well. And our goal is $100,000. And so please help us out if you can. The way we did it, I'm happy to discuss personally, but we've just gone out to a lot of our students and our parents and uh, ask them to donate and uh, match their donation. So that's it. That's the Covenant House. So I, I really appreciate it. Uh, we're probably collecting till the end of the year. As I said, with COVID and a lot of people losing their jobs, this has been a tough year for charities. And so if you can help in any way, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, because the sleep outs every November, but I know Covenant House has programs that run all year. So they are always looking for donations and volunteers and support. So even though it's absolutely 
past the big campaign, people can still give. Yes, please. Or look for the shelter nearest to you. And, you know, you could potentially get involved with them as well. You know, there are locations all throughout the major cities. Great. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. I know you're like one of the biggest guests that everyone wanted to hear, like share their wisdom. So thank you so much. My pleasure. If uh, anybody else has any questions, uh, feel free to reach out directly to me and uh, I'm happy to help. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we can't thank Mo enough for joining us. I know he's probably like the most iconic rock star to bring in for bringing someone who has centralized their back office to a really extreme extent. So hopefully you guys got a lot out of this or can at least see the vision of what it's like to go through that scaling up process. Nikki, you and I didn't interject too much during the interview. Is there any questions that we want to give our own two cents on, I think? The question that I want to hear from you or from like Temple Ventures is that first question we had asked about at what point in your portfolio's growth did you decide it was time to take certain tasks away from your centers and create a centralized role? So what was the timeline and sizing of your portfolio whenever that started happening? When I first joined the team and as center director, we had five centers. We were about to open the sixth. And every center director had a centralized role. For example, I was running the Tuckahoe Center, but I was also doing the phones for all the locations. And then we transitioned away from trying to do the phones while running a center because that was way too hard. And I was doing all the digital marketing. I don't know if you knew this, Libby. I used to do digital marketing for everybody. <laughs> And then there was someone else who handled the inventory, somebody else who handled the hiring. I think that was all because Joanne was running a center. So she was doing like all the like overhead ownership role and running a location. So that was her extra responsibility. So that was the way we first started to centralize when there weren't a lot of resources and the scale was a little smaller. The things that were centralized were things that were specialized. So I was the only one who had to learn the email marketing system. Then there was only one person who had to learn all of the hiring laws and all the like I-9 and interview regulations and things like that. And then there was one person who had to manage the like shopping list. So the responsibilities that had a slightly steeper learning curve were the ones that were centralized to a center director at the time, not to a support center. And then I think it was at the seventh center when it started to be at the place where the centers could then support the overhead and then support the support team. So the first item that we centralized was marketing. So this was hiring a marketing professional to develop, I mean, basically our whole strategy, our whole strategy, all the email marketing, all of the like PPC, the Facebook ads, just everything. And then, oh, we always had centralized billing. I forgot about that actually. So we would send our billing transactions to an accountant or it was Will, James's fiance at the time, now husband. So Will has been able to just like wear a ton of different hats and do a ton of different responsibilities throughout the years just to make things happen. 
So we've always had centralized billing. So I guess that was technically the first. Then we've had marketing. And then we started to move to centralized hiring. And then moved to, we had a role called systems and support manager. And that's just basically like keeping all of our like Google Drive, all of our spreadsheets, all of our outside vendors, all of our software. He's in charge of keeping all of that and making all of that happen. And then I guess after that, my role was the next like centralized support, just adding another level of oversight, accountability, and coaching to the center teams. So I got that role when we were at 11. So we had just opened the 11 center and I became director of center operations. I think we talked a little bit with Mo about what your team looks like, Libby, but do you want to give us a, a picture of your centralization? Yeah, so I talked about it a little bit with Mo, but I think something that I can offer that might be a little bit different than what's already been said is that before we centralized, we used vendors. So rather than Karen wearing, because Karen had four mathnesiums and two gyms before she had any child help. Evan and I were still in college. She used a lot of vendors. So I know HR is like a pretty obvious one to outsource because there's so much legal and tax code that is very hard and very tricky, especially in the state of California. So we used an HR professional for payroll. We've always used an accountant. We still use an accountant. That's something we have yet to bring back in-house. She used various marketing vendors. She had an administrative assistant there for a second to make sure someone was keeping her on her timeline. But for the most part, we just outsourced to vendors pretty largely. And then whenever I onboarded, it was just a matter of bringing stuff back in-house. So I mentioned earlier that we're both area managers and back office support staff and roles because now we have four lossings working full-time on the business. But if you're not there yet or if you don't necessarily have a team member that you think can take on an in-house back office role, I think a vendor, if you can find a good vendor, if you can request a vendor recommendation from another franchisee, vendors is a smart way to play it. Nice. That's good perspective. I have heard something from you and Mo through this episode that I want to just like pose as a question. You both have talked about having like explosive growth where like you went from 11 to 15 really rapidly. And he said he did 12 locations in 12 months plus, what was it, nine relocations. So how do you think having like a centralized support team has enabled you to rapidly add on multiple locations to your portfolio in a short time frame? It's a classic example of being able to work on the business instead of working in the business. And so the like rapid growth was definitely because I took a bunch of responsibility and decision-making from James. And then he had all this brain space for portfolio management, for expansion, for what does the next step look like when before it was very much what does the next like month look like? I think it's interesting. I know this isn't that like you, me and Amy talked about whenever we talked about resales that like this is more in my roles and responsibilities within the company is the expansion piece. Whereas that's still something that Mo and James have for y'all's teams. But part of expansion is approval to expand. 
So I very recently, not because I have a location in mind, just you're allowed to file for approval. We're not working on 10 yet. <laughs> you're allowed to file for approval before, you know, you actually have a location in mind. So I'm always ready. So the, the, the paperwork's always on file with Mathnasium. So I filed for pre-approval. I got pre-approval, yay. Um, I filed for it, but going through that survey, it was interesting because I had done it after we had interviewed Mo. Actually, I was doing it simultaneously. Like I paused on filling it out, interviewed Mo, and went back to it. And it's interesting. I can see why James and Mo have been able to acquire multiple locations in a relatively short time frame because part of the pre-approval process is like what systems and structures you have in place and what tough lessons you learned on your most recent location and like are you still learning tough lessons or have you kind of like mastered the system at this point and that's a lot of what the pre-approval for expansion document looks like and so I just think it's fun listening to like you guys talk about like your back office roles and like how you have it so systematically figured out Mo knows how far he can scale up before he needs to like add a layer and he knows what that layer would be. And that's why your owners have been able to like double their portfolio in like two years is because you guys have it masterminded already. And I think that's so interesting as like an outsider to listen to them talk about how they have it just figured out. I mean, it wasn't by accident and it wasn't easy. And you can scale that principle of having systems and understanding your capacity to the center level as well. So I learned a lot while I was running Short Pump. You run a small business as if it's a large business to give yourself room to grow. And that's true of the center as well. Like don't run a small center with practices that are like super labor intensive because you're not going to be able to catch up when you start to grow. You're going to just keep your levels too small. Like you're going to lose kids because you're not going to be able to satisfy all the customers. So you have to run a 50 kid center as if it's a 300 kid center, and then you will be able to be a 300 kid center. There's a lot of stuff that can be scaled to the center level or the business level. There's one thing from Mo's interview before like we wrap up the podcast that I just like, I heard him say it and I was like, whoa, I wonder what role this played in Mo's like upbringing in the franchise world is that he worked for a franchisee that had, what do you say, 130 something Pizza Huts? 136? Something like that. Like something crazy where I'm like, oh my gosh, it's almost like he had a mentor that like he saw that someone had 100 something franchise locations if I were him I'd be like watch me beat that (laughs) um so you may have noticed that we jumped from episode 31 to episode 33 so Nikki and I are not the only ones who have a hard time sticking to a timeline because for episode 32, it's supposed to be fueled by our listeners and y'all shout outs and wins. And either you guys were shy or you were enjoying your holiday or you're catching up on the podcast. So you're going to hear it in June and be like, oh, shoot, could have been on episode 32. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Nikki and I are going to leave that open. And when we have a sufficient amount of content to release an episode, episode 32 is going to drop 
at some point in the future. Or, okay, I did give this option to a couple people. If you don't want to speak and hear yourself on the podcast, you're welcome to just send us a written message and we can read it out loud. But we do have some very exciting Patreon news. So if everyone goes to our Patreon page, they will see the winner from November's raffle and then also be able to check out the December prize. And I'm super excited about the December prize. It's something that I use every day. So you can probably guess what it is, but still go check it out. So that way you can see for yourself and also be as excited as I am. Okay, that is it for episode 33, Winter Centralized. Thank you one more time to Mo Khalil for joining us on this episode. It was great. I love getting to hear from him specifically about his own story because I know I hear about him from his team and from people who are lucky enough to get to work with him and collaborate with him, but it was fun to get to hear it firsthand. I also love that this was a listener request. So any other listeners out there that are having any sort of challenge, please send it to us and we would be happy to break it down, find a guest and just discuss it and help through an episode. Okay. Well, thank you guys. We appreciate it. And this was a fun episode. We can't wait for you all to listen. And then as always, we will leave you with this PEMDAS podcast every Monday, download and subscribe. Bye. Bye. Thank you.